0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: What does it mean to sincerely hold a religious belief? How does one demonstrate sincerity, and how does one go about proving that sincerity on the public stage? How does religious sincerity matter in the legal world and court systems in religious freedom cases, or for those who are incarcerated and seeking certain services related to an expressed belief? These questions, and much more, are the topics explored in the new book Sincerely Held, American Secularism and its Believers, written by Dr. Charles McCrary and out now from the University of Chicago Press's Class 200 series. In this wide-ranging conversation, Dr. McCrary and I explore his path through academia, his work within secularism studies and religious studies, the history of sincerely held beliefs, and its mingling with greater society in the 1930s through 1960s. And then we dive into the current state of secularism issues in the United States and where the field may be headed in the future. Charles McCrary is a scholar of American religion, focusing on secularism, religious freedom, race, and science. He is the author of Sincerely Held, American, Secularism, and Its Believers. His work has been published in academic journals, including the Journal of American Academy of Religion, Religion and American Culture, and Religion. He has also written for popular outlets such as Religion and Politics, The Revealer, and The New Republic, many of which are linked in the show notes of this episode. Before coming to ASU, he was a postdoctoral research associate at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis. Charlie McCrary is on Twitter, at Charles McCrary. I hope you enjoy our conversation unsincerely Held. Dr. Charlie McCrary, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: It's a delight. Uh, So Charlie, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience so they know who you are and what you do.
0: Sure, I am a scholar of American religion. I was trained in American religious history um, at Florida State University. I currently work at the Center for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Arizona State University. And uh, I've been there for two years and I will be there for uh, one more. And I work on issues of secularism, race, religious freedom, um, and lately uh, I'm getting into science and history of science. Um, But what I'm really interested in is how people, especially in the US, have thought about religion as a category and what they do with it, how they manage it, what the boundaries of that are, um, and all the politics that go into that.
1: Awesome. I'm thinking back to my conversation with, uh, Dr. Amanda Furias where we talked about science a whole bunch and, uh, that was a really cool conversation. So I'm looking forward to possibly maybe in the future, having you back on the show to talk about your new explorations when you're talking about science too, in the future. So just open invite right off the bat there. Okay.
0: (laughs) Nice. Yes. Yeah. Well, it'll, uh, it'll be some years in the making i think but uh that's we'll see. cool
1: i'm i'm going to keep going i'm going to keep going on this show so um i've had many repeat guests which is one of my favorite things because when people come back it kind of just clicks into place and you just have uh, uh you pick up the friendship where where it left off on the first time around um but charlie i'd love to hear about your academic path um you know that took you from just being like a curious person, um, finding your way in the world, to being somebody who focuses on religion and secularism. Can you tell me a little bit more specifically about your your journey and your academic trajectory that you took?
0: Yeah, um, I am from North Dakota, or I, I went to high school there at least, um, and so I also went to college there at the University of North Dakota. Um, and there, I majored in. I started as a philosophy major, and they had a small philosophy and religious studies department a split department um, with three professors on each side so i was taking philosophy classes the religion classes are right there so i started taking the religion classes as well and just got really interested in religious studies and really from my first semester wanted to be a religious studies professor doing something Um, so i had you know I had my little New Testament phase yeah. and uh, Buddhism phase you know I read the um, Nagarjuna and stuff like that and uh, but what I was really interested in most I think was just what was going on around me and trying to make sense of contemporary American religion mm-hmm. um, and I got some advice from one of my professors that, you know, no, nobody there actually studied American religion as their primary field, so we were kind of figuring it out together. I was, I was working with a few professors who who studied other things, and we discovered, just through reading journals like Religion and American Culture, that a lot of what's going on in the field of American religion is actually historical. Um, and so unless I wanted to be an ethnographer or a sociologist or something, I should start reading history. So. In my junior year of college, I did that. I started reading a bunch of American religious history. And that's how I applied to grad school to do that. And um, when I was there, how I got interested in in the secularism stuff is, you know, in religious studies, there's this issue, which is the fact that religion is a made-up category, right? Mm. (laughs) Which, you know always leads to this sort of crisis for like first first year students I think or at least it often does Um, because it turns out the thing we thought we were studying doesn't really exist and Mm -hmm. and also it's it's made up by colonizers and so that seems bad so are we just perpetuating that and people have their own ways of kind of working through that Um, and and frankly I'm kind of less hung up on that issue than I used to be now I just call stuff religious it's fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but then I was like oh no how do I study religion and so the workaround is you can study other people using the word religion and then you have a religious studies project that is not reifying the category or something like that so that's my kind of backdoor into secularism studies there's this whole field that studies how people divide up the world into religious things and not religious things Mm. and what the politics of that are so that's how i got into that
1: that is so fascinating um Like, so what did you, is that you're in your PhD program that you kind of like latched onto that as an area of interest?
0: Yeah, even at the, even at the master's level, I think I started. So my master's wasn't real, my master's thesis wasn't really about secularism, but I had already started kind of doing that reading and and going in that direction. And then by the time I was finished with the master's and doing the PhD, that's when I sort of uh, made that a a more concentrated focus.
1: Excellent. So. You um you spent some time in my hometown at the Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis um is that is that like a postdoc position that you held after you were done with your PhD?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was there from 2018 to 20.
1: Awesome. I'd love to know more about your time there. I've seen the Danforth Center discussed often um, you know on, on Twitter and like I follow their work and I've never actually had anybody on the show who's been there and worked there and I just love to know a little bit about what you did there because you know it's just a place that I hold near and dear to my to my heart I used to go to punk shows at the Gargoyle in the basement of the Malincrot Center on at Washu's campus um, oh wow so it's like a place that I that I have personal connections to and I'd love to know a little bit about your work and time in St. Louis
0: that's, that's amazing. They, I, so far as I know, they do not do shows in, in the basement of Mallinckrodt anymore. No, um, I don't think so. <laughs> nobody invited me if they, if they do. Yeah. I I, I taught in that building for one semester and uh, it was, it was a pretty tame building at the time. Yeah. Um, although you should look up sometime for listeners or, or for anybody. Um, the history of the Mallinckrodts, which is every St. Louis family has this very strange sordid history, which is always like <laughs> dealing in like, brewing beer and also nuclear waste on the side like there's always some yeah yeah so the yeah the the mallincrats are um sort of poisoning the ground but anyway um yeah i loved i loved my time in st louis st louis is a cool city um i lived in um forest park southeast and so i was able to you know walk when the, when the weather was nice, I would walk all the way through the park to get to Wash U And, uh, it was like really lovely. I, I liked it there. Um, yeah, the Danforth Center is a cool place. It's, um, you know, they have so many great scholars there. It was founded in, I think, 2011, 2010 or 11, um, by Senator, uh, John Danforth, who, um, it was a Republican Senator from Missouri from the seventies through the nineties. And has a bunch of money. They're from it's an old, rich family. Everything is named Danforth around there, um which comes from Purina dog food. Um, mm-hmm. It's mostly dog food money. So,, uh, but they had this big foundation with millions and millions of dollars, and they used it to fund um, a plant science center, um which is associated with Monsanto. <laughs> and then also the Center on Religion and Politics. yeah. um, and so the the kind of conceit of the Center for Religion and Politics is just that, we would study how religious ideas and religious people get involved in politics at a pretty straightforward level, I think was the kind of original conception, like how do senators of different religious backgrounds get along or not get along with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Or what's the deal with the religious right and the moral majority, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think since then, you know, there's so many great scholars who have been there for the whole time and have come in and out of there. Um, that are reinterpreting the conversation around religion and politics in a lot of interesting ways. Um, And it's a great place to have a postdoc. I had a ton of time to write the book that I wrote. Um, Mm -hmm. I would not have been able to write the book like that. I basically, it's sort of based on my dissertation, but it's an eight chapter book and only one chapter is in the dissertation. So I really did a ton of work there. Um, Yeah, there's lots of resources and time and support. And it's just a great, community and and a, a good place to be
1: well let's dive into the book that you mentioned sincerely held american secularism and its believers from class 200 series at the university of chicago press i'm really excited to hear about the book um tell me about like this concept um we have a few important terms here in the title sincere and held. And in the book, you dive into each of these terms in pretty great detail. And I'm wondering if you can kind of like tease these apart for me and give the listener sort of a background of the title, but also like, explain what you mean by these terms of being sincere and something that is held, because that was so fascinating to me.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I um, yeah, so there's the section, um, for those who haven't read it in, in the intro where I was trying to figure out how to like write some of the orienting arguments and what I'm trying to do in this book. And I realized I needed a section on sincerity and I needed one on what I meant by religion and belief. Uh, but in the phrase sincerely held religious belief, there's there's four words. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll just write a section on each word. Um, yeah, uh, And so held, I think, was the kind of most surprising, at, at least for me, because it seems like not a significant part of the equation. Um, But I wanna argue that it is because what I'm interested in tracing in this book is the character of the sincere believer or the the figure of the sincere believer who gets to be the sincere believer and what do they get to do as that kind of, as that in that role. Mm -hmm. Um, And it actually is important to think about the sincere believer as a holder, as somebody who holds a belief. Um, And so then the question is, how do you hold a belief? You know, what kind of holding is this? Is it a a property relation? Is it something that you're holding for somebody else? Um, And what I want to argue is that the sincere believer holds a belief because they are a sort of self-possessed rational person, right? You're capable of holding a belief like um, somebody who is Unstable or inconsistent, they don't really hold their beliefs, or somebody who is just performing a ritual and not really thinking about it. You know, they're not a belief holder. They're not this kind of like agentive subject who's really in charge of stuff, right? So there's something about like the politics of being this liberal subject who holds something um, in a way that might be kind of like a property relation, but not always. Um, that that actually matters quite a bit. The the holding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and sincerity, uh, yeah, I go, I go through the definition of sincerity a little bit here. There's, it gets used in different ways, but um, when you're being sincere, you are imagining that there's something inside of you that you really believe, and then you've got public speech, right? So mm-hmm. there's a public private binary kind of written onto the individual. And what we're doing when we say somebody's being sincere is that their public speech, what they're doing that we can see, the mask that they're wearing, you know, the face that they're putting on actually matches the thing inside of them, mm-hmm. that real thing. And so it's that test of consistency between the public and private. Um, and so to be recognized as a sincere believer, you have to, there's a little bit of an interrogation or an investigation that has to go on, right? People have to say, is that really what's inside? Um, but it depends on an evaluation of the outside the speech the face all of that um which kind of contributes to this character the sincere believer it's somebody who can kind of put on that face and convince others in this in a religious freedom case you know the judge or whoever that i am sincere what i'm saying matches what's inside who i really am right and who that really is is a belief holder a person with some stable beliefs that they're holding on to
1: interesting i'm um... This is such a fascinating thing because um, it really matters how people that are witnessing this person's words and behaviors, how we, the observers, judge them, right? Like we could perceive them as being sincere, but we could also perceive them as being insincere. And so they might be saying that they're sincere, but like if we don't believe it, then for me, it wouldn't be true, and that's something that is is really fascinating about this is like, how does one person who is believed widely to be sincere, how do they then become being perceived as being insincere? Like what has to happen for somebody who was previously seen as sincere to then be seen as insincere over time? Like what has to happen in that to change that public perception?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Consistency is always something that that people try to um, evaluate when, well, in in court cases, but also just in everyday life, right? If somebody has a sudden change in how they're acting. And then the other thing is it's not just consistency, but it's also motivation. And this also happens in religious freedom cases, right? It's one thing to say, you know, if you're an incarcerated person and you wanna grow a beard. Yeah. Okay that's fine. If you are somebody who doesn't want to get drafted, you might have not religious reasons for not want. you know, there's clear ulterior motives that might be going on. There's Mm -hmm. lots of good reasons not to want to be drafted and go fight in Vietnam. Right. There's not that many reasons why you just have such a strong need to grow a beard while you're in prison or Mm -hmm. wear a hijab or something like that. Right. So that the motivate, um, obvious ulterior motives often are taken as signs of insincerity or at least possible insincerity right if you've got a good reason to lie about this well you might be lying if there's no good reason to lie about it like you know if you're if you need some sort of special diet in prison um like one of the guys that i I write about in, in chapter seven he wants a diet entirely of uncooked fruits and vegetables well you know that's a little bit different from if you're, you know, if you're in prison, you say, my religion says I have to have only gourmet meals that you, f-, you know, there might be other reasons you you want that. But if you're just re- eating raw fruits and vegetables, like, you know, <laughs> there's yeah. not an obvious reason why you'd want to do that otherwise.
1: Yeah, I find that to be so fascinating that a lot of the like some of the examples in the book are about incarcerated people. And, you know, the way that they are treated in our society today and how they can express something, but then how people who have power over that person's everyday life can just like deem them to be insincere in what they're saying. And like, that's such a fascinating area of conversation that I think needs to be thought about more as we think about, you know, like the rights of people who are incarcerated and making life a little more manageable for everybody. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, definitely. And so there is a law, there's a federal law um, called RLUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, um, which was passed in 2000, which is basically, um, it's like a kind of a sister law to RIFRA, which people might've heard of, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from 1993. Um, and it it's basically the same law, but, but it applies specifically to, to institutionalized persons. Um, but yeah that comes up all the time as a a, the prison is a really common setting where individuals come up directly against the state and have their requests either granted or denied Mm -hmm. right because they are they are really their everyday lives are determined by an agent of the state what you get to eat whether you get access to this religious service or, or whatever you need right and so um yeah, that's a, a sort of a hotbed for for legal issues.
1: Yeah, you know, there's another term I want to dive into here about, like, what is it, what is the term secular even mean in the year 2022? Um, like, you, you talk about secular and secularity, and also projects of secularity, so there's a lot of different plays on this term that you have throughout the book, and I'm wondering if you can just
0: extrapolate those a little bit for me. Sure, yeah, this, is a i think this i would call this a secularism studies book you know i I, that's the the field or the sort of subfield where i i have my most my closest interlocutors when people talk about i was just talking about this um yesterday two days ago with joe blankholm um who's at uc santa barbara who has a great book coming out soon called the secular paradox people people want to check out for that it's nyu press um but you know he's he's got an issue with the way I, I do things sometimes because he spends a lot of time talking to secularist activists and people who call themselves secularist, right? And the way that they use the term and sort of everyday uses of the term is a little out of step with the way some scholars use the term. And then among scholars, there's all kinds of different uses. So let me briefly try to kind of suss this out. Sure. I think there's two major ways that secular is used in everyday language one is to talk about church state separation right secular governments are governments that don't have an official church um and then the other way is just not religious i'm a secular person because i don't really believe in god and i don't really go to church right so you're a secular person mm-hmm. and these two things go together right if we look at like you know. Uh, any of the big secularist societies, or the Freedom from Religion Foundation, or Americans United for the Separation of Church and State—they are kind of secularist in both senses. They kind of bleed together, right? They say we need to keep religion out of government. We need to have robust church-state separation, and also religion is bad, and that's why, right? These two, these two things, kind of go together for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way in, I guess what what sometimes gets called critical secularism studies, the way that scholars in, in that vein talk about it, and th- and a lot of this comes from post-colonial scholarship and specifically the work of Talal Asad, and so uh, in his books, um, Genealogies of Religion from 1993 and Formations of the Secular from 2003 um, he and others, uh, including me, are talking about secularism as a form of governance, right? We have this idea that uh, the state is not religious, but it has to interact with religions. It has to do something with them, right? It could be leaving them alone. It could be not taxing them. It could be giving them a different set of rules. It could also be guaranteeing religious freedom, right? All of the, the state has to interact with religion. And that interaction is regulatory and often disciplining. And so that those are the questions that I am asking about how secular governance works, right? How is secularism as these, this form of government implemented? Right? How do you decide who gets religious freedom, who gets some special privileges, who does not get them? Um whether, who gets taxed, why they get, you know, all of Mm -hmm. those sorts of questions, that's, and that, that's what I'm, I'm really into. So that's what I'm getting at when I talk about secularism is those acts of secular governance on the ground in the management and regulation of religion, which means that you have to define religion. You have to have some idea of what it is in order to regulate it and interact with it and so on. Excellent. You
1: know, and, I saw in the book that you also were inspired by scholars of literature about the secular. And so I love when fields interact like that. And I'm wondering if you have any examples that you like that you really loved when you were discovering um, some other stuff in some other fields that related to your work. Do you have any ideas and examples about that kind of stuff?
0: Yes, Um yeah, it's really interesting that scholars of American literature, um, especially 19th century literature have been um, some of the most interesting and creative scholars and kind of pushing forward secularism studies In in my heart, I want to be a 19th century literature person. Nice. <laughs> I kind of always have I just I don't know. I don't think I quite have the skill set for it. I really tried in the book. So the first chapter has has a pretty extended bit on Herman Melville's novel, mm-hmm. the, the Confidence Man. So I'm, I just I love Melville scholarship and and Hawthorne and, and all that. I just, um, I, I don't actually like reading Novels <laughs> very much, so I, that's why I couldn't really do that as a career path. I, I yeah. realized that early on, like, oh, it's actually not that fun to. Re-. I like reading scholarly writing about novels much nice. more than I like reading actual novels. But yeah. um, but you know, there. Uh, so I, I'm thinking, especially of scholars like um Tracy Fessenden, um her book uh, "Culture and Redemption," or John Modern, his. 2011 book Secularism and Antebellum America, which was really foundational for me. That was my first year in grad school, and we, we read that the, uh, or I read it. It came out in December of 2011, so right after my first semester of grad school, and I read it over the winter break. And I remember just being like, "Oh yeah, this is where it's at." Um, nice. And so John has been, you know, a good friend and mentor for for a long time, and he's one of the editors on the series that the that the book is in. So that that's been a real kind of inspiring book for me. Um. Also, Emily Ogden's work, uh, *Credulity*, which which is also in the series, which is which is really great. Um, but I think that yeah, scholars of literature, they're really good at paying attention to texts, reading closely, figuring out how words are used, and they're also trained, often in you know various sorts of French theory, and they undertake Foucauldian projects, which is, I think. Has in the last 10 or 20 years led a lot of them to the work of Assad and some of this critical secularism studies literature because that's all kind of building on Foucault. So there's a way that what we're all doing here is looking closely at texts, seeing how words are used to describe different things, how these categories are getting drawn sometimes in subtle ways, you know, who is superstitious, who, you know who is ecstatic, I'm thinking of like Lindsay Rexon's new book Realist Ecstasy, where she's really interested in the category of the ecstatic um, religious ecstasy. Um, and then, you know, interrogating those categories, where where do they come from? Where does that word come from? What, is it, what does it relate to? What are the kind of racialized and gendered dimensions of that word and its applications? You know, all of those kinds of questions. Um, scholars of literature are really good at that. And, and so I think it's for that reason that they've been Kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff.
1: Nice. I want to dive back into this book here real quick. Um, you start the book with uh, Guy Ballard, the I am movement, which reached over a million followers. I've never talked about the, the these people or this organization on the podcast before, so I'm really excited to hear about it. And that, you know that's just as a little aside. That's like my favorite thing about doing this podcast is every time I do a new interview, I find a topic that I've never even mentioned on this show before. And I'm like 240 episodes into this thing. So this is like just an endless well of lifelong learning for me. But I want to know um, about this story behind the start of the book here with Ballard and the I am movement, because this is all brand new to me.
0: Yeah, it's um I wish there were more scholarship on, on the I Am movement. I think I think there's some in the works. I know that Erica Doss has been working on, on a book about them for, for a while. I don't know what the status of that is. But yeah, it's this, this group who is led by this guy named Guy Ballard. Um, they're based in California. They start in 1930 and uh, Guy Ballard dies in 39. So that's really the height of the popularity is kind of the mid-30s, which i think it's not you know it's not a mere coincidence that this uh, coincides with the great depression there's something going on there so this they're kind of a theosophist offshoot they're interested in new thought and sort of what gets called the new age i guess and mm-hmm. occultism there's a kind of swirl of ideas about ascended masters you know these Earthly sages who have ascended to the next realm. and uh, and so what Guy Ballard says is he can access them, and he has these kind of um, channeling. is not quite the right word, but he receives messages from the ascended masters. So people who have uh, even people like George Washington, you know, so it's kind of like spiritualism in that way. Some of these interesting dead, great figures will come back and give you some messages. Then he writes them down in a book. and um, But they do these big healing services. They perform miracles. Um, so they amass this pretty big following. And the reason it comes up in the book, um, the reason it matters to me is that Guy Ballard dies. Um, and the problem with this is that one of their claims was that he's immortal, um, which turned out not to be true, it would seem. Um, <laughs> very very short order too like nine
1: years later he's gone
0: yeah yeah um and so his his wife and his son who are also the kind of co-leaders of the movement they've got this issue which is like all right what do we do and they kind of just keep on trucking they keep you know doing their meetings sending their stuff out sending out their material in the mail and in that material is you know a series of claims about shaking hands with the ascended Jesus, about doing healings, but also about Guy being immortal. Um, and so they get arrested for sending fraudulent materials through the mail. Mm. They say, you can't send out this fraudulent stuff. This isn't yeah. true. And their argument is, these are our religious beliefs. You can't tell us they're not true. And the Supreme Court basically agrees with that argument. They say, you know what, it's actually not the job of the secular court to say that religious beliefs aren't true that's and you know which seems like a good decision that seems like a messy business if you're going to go in and say well this counts because it's a good and true religious belief and this one seems like you know totally false yeah <laughs> so that's where the sincerity test comes from this they decide you can test whether people really believe it but not whether you know not test its veracity its truth um and so that's like that's the genesis of a lot of this a lot of this stuff um, but yeah there's a ton more to say about the ballards and, and i wish there were there are more writing on them. I I have a I have a little footnote early in the book if people want to mind that. And that that has everything I know of that has been written about them. I might have missed some stuff, but there's you know maybe three or four places you can look.
1: That's awesome. That that tie-in of like uh fraudulence and hucksters and legal history like these are like a couple of the narratives that you wind your way through the entire book and the other one being secularization and institutionalization of religion. Can you talk a little bit about that organizational structure that you have woven throughout the book?
0: Yeah, there's there's three. Um, yeah, like you said, there's kind of three, I think I talk about it as like strands or, or types of stories. You, you, I think I say you could, you could put Ballard into a number of stories and here are at least three, right? One is this legal history of the sincerity test so i can say more about that in a minute but basically the idea being once once the courts have decided we're just going to test we're not going to test veracity and truth we're going to just test whether you really believe it that starts off this whole uh you know this whole tradition of testing sincerity that leads us to the 21st century where sincerely held religious belief is such a big thing right so we can kind of start the story with Ballard um, but there's also, actually the story I thought I was going to be telling, I was going to end with Ballard um, when I was planning this uh, a dissertation like almost 10 years ago now. Um, I was thinking a lot about frauds and hucksters and the, the figure of the charlatan in American religion. because um, we have so many stories about, um, you know, huckster preachers or snake oil salesmen mm-hmm. or people selling, you know, fake cures and stuff like that. And, and yeah. I was really, I was really interested. I mean, I'm still interested in how people decide whether those claims are true or false. How do how do you actually test that, you know, or, or what, what's the mode of debunking? What's the kind of, what are the ideas behind debunking the, or exposing you know, when somebody goes undercover and exposes a healing minister or someone like that, you know, they take a hidden camera and they're like, oh, see, this person in the wheelchair didn't really need the wheelchair. This is all staged. It's all right. fake. You know, what's that pulling off of the mask? What is that kind of ritual of exposing? Um, and that has a long history in, in the U.S. And so I thought I was going to be writing the whole book about that. Um, and so the ballads would certainly fit into, fit into that story as well.
1: I love how plans tend to go awry whenever <laughs> whenever you go to get into research. Um, you know, it's, as far as like a little more legal history goes, something that I had never really um, gotten into is the history of the United States versus Seeger, uh, which is a court case that you talk about in the book. And I'm curious about learning a little bit more about your experience of learning about that and writing about that as well. Seeger
0: is a 1965... 1965- Supreme Court case where um, it's a conscientious objection case. So it's a guy who objects to war by reason of his religious training and belief. Um, And Seeger gets cited all the time. I mean, up until the present day. So it's a really pivotal case for religious freedom law, um, which is a little bit weird because it's not actually a first amendment case. It's just about the draft law. but it it quickly kind of gets treated like a First Amendment case. Um, And so I wanted to work back and figure out how that case worked, what Seeger is actually about. And it led me to this long exploration of the draft and how conscientious objection actually worked in this vast bureaucratic system of the Selective Service Agency. Um, So the issue with, with Seeger is that the draft act says to become a conscientious objector you have to object to war by reason of your religious training and belief and what that means is belief in relation to a supreme being and not an essentially political belief. And Seeger does not affirm a belief in God. And so the big question is like does he count? And what the court says in 1965 is he does count because he has this deep and sincere and meaningful belief, and it is held in a place parallel to that of a more orthodox belief. Right. So they have this idea that there's somewhere inside of all of us mm-hmm. where the important beliefs go, where your ultimate concern goes. They they cite this Protestant theologian Paul Tillich, who kind of who defined religion as an individual's ultimate concern. Which is also a definition that makes its way into all kinds of religious studies textbooks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the Supreme Court uses that and they're like, well, ultimate concern, yeah, the most important thing to you, a deep foundational belief. For a lot of people, that's something traditionally religious. For a lot of people, it's something else. Yeah, and it all basically counts as religion, um, which is a pretty wild
1: <laughs> standard. Yeah. It
0: really, it really like blows it open. Um, and so, What happens from there is that more and more people start to fit this model of a sincere believer and it it opens quite wide um, and then contracts again and then opens again and opens quite a lot nowadays, I think.
1: Well, let's talk about now. So a lot of the um, amazing, a lot of the examples that I was really intrigued by in your book happened in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And I'm wondering what kind of what you're paying attention to these days that kind of remind you about some of the history that you write about in your book. Like, does any like recent stuff kind of jump out at you as being like, whoa, this is really cool. And this is kind of where, you know, that that you're paying attention to around us that we can see right now.
0: Yes, there's been a lot of... Um both court cases and you know, kind of lower level issues. I'm thinking especially of like vaccine exemptions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, many, many people have applied for religious exemptions to the COVID vaccine. Um, some of them have been successful, some of them have not been successful, um, but all of it is actually in this kind of, legally speaking, it's in this line with the sincerity test and the Seeger case and the figure of the sincere believer. Um, because you have to demonstrate that you are that you really sincerely and religiously believe that this vaccine is 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 bad for you, right? So how do you actually do that? Like what are the what are the arguments that you can make? Well, you can say something about I heard it was tested or that, that fetal cell lines from aborted fetuses were used to develop the vaccine and thus to get this in my body is to participate in the murder of uh, unborn children, right? Mm-hmm. That's your belief. Um, that's not exactly true, but whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Because the point is that you sincerely believe it, not that right. it's verifiable by evidence or something. Um, so people have tried that, people have tried other other things. Um, I did see something, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about this, because I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've been puzzling over this. Um, There's a Pew study that came out um, a few weeks ago where 67, I think it was 67% of people in the US who were surveyed thought most of the vaccine exemption claims, the religious exemption claims um, were insincere, which to me seems shocking because more and more people are being counted as sincere all the time. It seems like, you know, most people like religious freedom, like <laughs> most people think it's a good idea and yet, like two thirds of people are quite skeptical about this. I don't know. I don't know know exactly what's going on with that.
1: I'm wondering if there's a connection there to the mass onslaught of political disparities that are, you know, going across the country right now. Like, cause we, if you think about like the demographics of like voting and things like that and party affiliation, I I wonder if, if that 33% of um. You know people who believe the sincerity if there's any kinds of uh, media consumption habits that they may have if there's any kind of political affiliations that they may have that might align some of those statistics with some other you know like some other media consumption habits and stuff like that that's kind of where that's kind of where my brain's going with that
0: yeah I think that's probably right um I think it's also the case that you know, a lot of people probably know somebody who has applied for an exemption mm-hmm. and they might think that they are insincere mm-hmm. <laughs> yep you know, and and they might be you know who knows i mean uh you know my my spouse works at a hospital and and she has um she has a number of coworkers who are um, nurses and um social workers who got a religious exemption and They don't seem particularly religious. (laughs) Yeah, like
1: if you you follow them on the weekend or something like that to see what they do, um, you're maybe not that likely to see outward forms of religious expression and devotion. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're not religious. I mean, I Right. I I, I wouldn't want to I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to think about this because I think plenty of these people are are perfectly sincere in their belief that the vac- that they shouldn't get the vaccine. The vaccine violates some sort of ultimate concern that they have, you know, whether that ultimate concern is um I don't know what Joe Rogan told them or or whether it's what a pastor told them like at a certain level who cares right if if we're going to take this broad definition of what religion is then it seems like a bit of a neat line to draw um and yet if just anything counts well then we just have this weird workaround in our system where you can just disobey any law and be like well my religion says not to and we don't really ask questions about that that seems bad (laughs) That's such an
1: interesting slippery slope, too, you know, because where does it end? And these are things that genuinely perplex me that um, I, you know, you have to look at on like a case by case basis and really be informed. And that's just kind of the thing that that's the step that doesn't really tend to happen. You know, people don't tend to get all of the information and they tend to say things like I'm doing research on it, which really we know what that means as they're watching YouTube on their phone. Um, So that's a really tricky area to get into um, because I don't know either. I don't have the answers and it confuses me every day. Living in a society (laughs) makes me feel more confused. And I feel like with each passing year in my life, I get more confused instead of less um, which I guess that's a good thing because it means that I'm keeping my mind moving and open to new stuff instead of siloing myself. but it's it's so confusing. And you know, I, I commend you for for being involved in that public conversation around these issues because it is it is a daunting task.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. It is. I, I am also confused. I, I kind of have to keep working on this stuff. I, it's kind of funny, like finishing a book, I, in some ways i want to be done with the topic you know yeah. and, and i mean the book just came out but i submitted it to the press over a year ago so i have yeah. in i don't know some some of my friends who write history books you just you write about something and then it it stopped happening <laughs> a long time ago right <laughs> so you're just kind of like done um and so i sort of want to be done in a way but this all of these issues around sincerity and religious freedom are they are not going away and so i, I feel a sort of fascination but also a kind of professional obligation to keep up with all the all the developments and, and and figure out where this is going I mean the big question that I have going forward I think is th- and this kind of gets gets to what you were saying uh, is um do should sincerity should we have to give reasons you know what I mean like mm-hmm. I, I think that I actually kind of want to resuscitate since sincerity a little bit as a good public ethic, right? Because if if we're going to have kind of deliberative democracy, if we're going to talk about things in public, if we're going to give justifications for what we do, then we presume that people are speaking sincerely, that they're not just making stuff up. Um, and yet, the way that sincerely held religious belief works in the US today often is as a way not to give reasons and mm-hmm. not to participate in public right you can't question somebody's you know if, if people push you hard you can say don't question my faith and that's right. rude you're not supposed to do that yeah. but at the same time if you're going to say here's my religious belief and thus i don't have to follow this law well i think you should at the very least have to explain what your religious belief is and we should be able to have those conversations and kind of ask each other difficult questions and have you know, some real theological talk in public. And that is not what happens now.
1: Right. Because does it affect the common good? Or or is it like a totally private thing that only happens within the privacy of one's own home that doesn't impact other people who don't hold those same beliefs? So it's like, is there a public impact or not? Like that seems to be like yes. the, the, the area of in between where you have to engage in it at least a little bit, you know?
0: yeah yeah legal scholars call this third party harms um so you know it's one thing to well to to bring up the beard example again like this i'm talking about this case holt v hobbs um from 2015 but you know if you want to grow a half inch beard in prison the reason that they weren't allowed to is because you could you know sneak weapons in there or something if you got this big bushy beard you can hide stuff in it so they said well a half inch beard you can't hide anything in there okay great so that's just not going to hurt anybody there's no third party harm. Whereas, you know, if you say that your church needs to meet in the summer of 2020, um, pre-vaccine, right. COVID spreading everywhere, and you want to have a thousand people in a room singing, um, it's not really an individual choice. It's not really this matter of individual belief. It's like, People will die because yeah. of that. You know, there are third party harms <laughs> that, yes. that are in play here. And so it's that that's the big that that's where the calculus changes is, is where the third party harms are. And because we recognize as a society, or at least most people do, religious freedom is important, freedom of conscience is important, but also not harming other people is important. And so which one is more important? How does that actually work? And and when religious freedom conflicts with other rights, um, which one takes precedent where where's the the compromise between them you know if your religious belief says you can't facilitate a same-sex wedding but other people have a right to a same-sex wedding to to a marriage um which right wins how does it where's the compromise is there one um yeah that's i think that's kind of the hot button issue with sincerity going forward is where does it stop and what other rights of other people does it allow to kind of diminish uh and, and where is that stopping point?
1: The work the work ahead is is vast. And you know I'm I sense that you have a good grasp on that and also maybe some goals as well. Um but as you mentioned Sincerely Held is still a brand new book um just out and I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your Perception of the series that you're involved in, Class Two Hundred, at University of Chicago Press, because I personally love this series. I've had Maya Katrositz on the podcast. I've had Jolion Thomas on the podcast. I'm going to have Dana Logan on the podcast, and I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this series that you're involved in because I think that it's really cool, and I just kind of want to hear your perception as somebody who's a part of it.
0: My perception is also that it's really cool. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah. It's so I think. You know, uh, John Modern and Katie Lofton started this series, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And so far as I can tell, the only real guiding principle for it was that it should be works in religious studies that are doing something new and fresh and speaking kind of reflexively about religious studies as a discipline um, with some attention to style and form. Um, and so I think almost all of the books in the series um, are about how we do what we do as religion scholars, at least in some ways, and how some of the ideas that have informed religious studies over the years might, might be rethought or reworked. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's a kind of deep engagement with self-reflexivity and the position of the author to and thinking about as a field what we have done and and what we could do what we could do differently. Um, so that has resulted in all kinds of different books. Um, I mean, a lot of them having something to do with secularism studies. Not not all, but there's there's a little bit of a secularism thread running through it. Um, but yeah, it's it's such it's such an honor to be part of the series. And there's great books and great you know all the people you just mentioned. Um, yeah. Oh, you've got Dana's book.
1: I do. It's right here.
0: For the listeners, Greg is holding up Dana's book with its beautiful cover. That's so it's, exciting. Yeah, Dana's. It's a an amazing friend.
1: cover. Awkward Rituals by Dana Logan. I'm really excited about this one.
0: Yes. Yeah, me too. I got it. Mike, I haven't gotten my copy yet. Ooh. <laughs> Where is
1: mine? <laughs> Calling out Dana. <laughs> Love it. Well, Charlie, do you have any like um, you know, links or uh like profiles or anything that you might like to promote out to listeners out there where they, if they want to follow along with your work or uh, get in touch or anything like that?
0: Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Charles McCrary. Um, I have been in in the last couple of years trying to put out some popular pieces too. So I, I've got pieces that people might be interested in in um, religion and politics. And I've done a couple in the New Republic in uh, one just earlier this month. Um, also, my uh, my webpage at ASU, um, just search Charles McCurry ASU. Um, I have my CV up there now. I finally made the webpage. I did it like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it, it was blank for years, but now it exists. So you can get my CV. You can see all the stuff that I've written um, if you're interested in in reading it. And please feel free to reach out, email me, um, the emails on the CV, tweet at me, whatever.
1: Excellent. Well. Dr. Charlie McCrary, I am so delighted to have you on the podcast to talk about Sincerely Held out now from University of Chicago Press. Thanks so much for spending this hour with me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me. I've been, uh, I've been a big fan of the podcast for a long time, and um, this is my first podcast appearance, and I am truly delighted that it could be on this one.